They say it's a party in the USA, but these days it feels more like one of those social obligations you can't get out of but are dying to. Everyone you hate is there shouting at each other and lying about national security, while somehow also complaining about every type of person in attendance and pocketing the entry fee. There's booze, but no snacks, and the AC is broken. Everyone's sick, but you're all just there, trying to have a party, because you all agreed, by showing up, that that's what this was. It's easy to lose sleep getting mired in the text messages and transcribed phone calls of hideous men, and to exhaust yourself trying to survive the latest thing you heard they got away with. But since doing that will kill you and the goal of being human is to stay alive, we put down our phones, shook off the Cheeto dust, turned off the TV, and did what we always do. Grabbed a mic, hit the streets, and went looking for the sparks of joy we knew must be hiding amongst the rubble. We started our investigation into how people party at the center of it all, Party City. But weirdly, no one was partying or even talking at all. Thank you. So we went to the Spirit Halloween Superstore to see how people were channeling their fear into holiday fun. But it was too scary, and no one would talk to us. Uh, we're not doing work hours, I'm sorry. <laughs> so we went to Chuck E. Cheese, where a kid can be a kid. But all the kids were caught up in a printer jam at the ticket machine. Wait, 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 don't press it, don't press it, don't press it. Keep coming, keep coming. And all the adults were busy coping. I'm always here, so I don't get to do anything. <laughs> so we did what we always do packed our gear, went back to the office, and asked a handful of producers to head out into the world and find out how people are creating moments of joy amidst a never-ending cycle of bad news. This month, we're staving off death and celebrating life. First, we let our freak flag fly in Fort Greene Park. Then, we find out how safe safe spaces truly are. Next, we go behind the music and turn back time. And finally, we pull an all-nighter on Eastern Parkway. It's always dark as before dawn, so until we see the sun again, you can find us in the club, nodding our heads like yeah, in Brooklyn, USA. In the early 2000s, three friends bonded over their love for soul, house, and disco music and launched an all-day dance jam in a park in Brooklyn. The free outdoor dance party, which they called Soul Summit, grew out of New York's underground club scene and developed a cult following as the celebration of the borough's vibrant diversity. Fans came from all around the world to take part in the Sunday ritual of dancing, drumming, and dressing up. In the years since, the party has traveled the world, bringing together revelers from every generation and background. Producer Shadi Saad joined the celebration to tell the story of this party for the people. Here's Taboo. Park, 
My name is Taboo. I'm one of the organizers of Soul Summit Music Festival. We just like to think that it's something spiritual we have going on here. That like the most high shines down on us when we do this event. I'm a product of the jam in the parks. Anybody in our age group are probably products of park jam. My name is Sadiq Bellamy. I am one of the co-founders of Soul Summit Music. Taboo and I spoke about meeting one another um, at various music events. Jeff, the same instance. Hi, I'm Jeff Mendoza. I'm with Soul Summit Music. We were in Taboo's apartment, yeah. the three of us. I remember Tab talking about the summit mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. uh, the summer solstice, I remember mm -hmm. including that. It was like a reawakening, a refreshing coming out of the spring winter. The summit is always the highest point of any area. This music will take you to a higher point than where you currently are when you arrive at the party. That was always the goal. And we all agreed that, you know, we wanted to get the music outside and we determined that, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll do it at Kyla Gore Park and we'll do it on an off day. Of course, we didn't even realize we were creating safe space. We just didn't want no politics on the dance floor. come here to shake it off. So many times I've gone on the floor and released my pain. All the people together as one. This is house. This is one family. Ain't about Spanish, black, Puerto Rican, gay, yellow, purple, orange. Everybody here loves each other and it's the best medicine in the world. The best. The best. Nothing beats it. Fort Greene, Brooklyn was a creative hub. The park, though, was underutilized the way we're utilizing it to throw a big party. At Kyligore Park, the park we started at, we kind of outgrew that fast. There was a gentleman councilman, James Davis. Right, it was his idea to move this party to Fort Greene. And I remember I was like, I... Kicking and screaming? Yeah, yeah, I was like, nah, I don't want to move it up there, up the hill. I didn't see the vision up here. I came up the hill and I was like amazed how many people. I said, like, I guess we're home. People really gravitated towards it, more so than we expected in the beginning. Mm. When the first time I came to Soul Summit and they played house music, like all of it was house music, and I was like, this is amazing. Like, black people invented house music. There was a connection to Soul Summit taking back uh, house music and like being like, no, this is a black thing, this is our thing, and this is what we're gonna do. It's just amazing. The Good energy, energy. Yes. yes, really amazing energy. energy here. We heard about this party through social media, and we're always looking for fun stuff to do to get associated with the community, so we were like, this seems like a good place to be. Exactly, and it's also like, it's so hard. Like, I know for me, like work, my internship, I'm not as surrounded by my people, so coming to a place where I have like my people, like my culture, it's really like inspiring, it's like refueling. I think it outgrew the initial and typical house music event. What's interesting is how people find us looking for the haven that Taboo described. And that haven is Soul Summit. Summit! Yes, yes, Brooklyn, Fort Greene Park.
Again, about 18 years ago, three guys decided to bring freedom, love, and harmony to Brooklyn in the middle of Fort Green Park. No one wanted to come into Fort Green Park all the time as no. This event is mainly about bringing the community together, introducing this music to a wider audience, and showing that a bunch of people can get together and have fun and celebrate each other. House music is about freedom. To an outsider scrolling around on Instagram, New York's nightlife party sphere may seem more inclusive than ever. But behind each carefully curated photo grid is a world of joy, sweat, and tears. A world that clears the way for self-expression, but can't necessarily guarantee safety. In recent years, the relationship between QTPOC partygoers and the security hired to monitor events specifically catered to them has been tested time and time again. Producer Sid Ballou hit the scene to find out how venues and party planners can work together to reimagine safety for marginalized communities. Here's DJ Rose Royce. Even a situation is advertised as queer friendly, it doesn't mean the whole staff is. When you go to the club, when you go to the store, you can maneuver the way you want, but you don't know if someone comes in and doesn't understand you or doesn't respect you. Work. Although there is a renaissance of Black and POC LGBTQ nightlife in Brooklyn, security at these parties remains an issue of concern. To get an insider's perspective, I spoke with three LGBTQ POC nightlife curators for a closer look at the issue. My name is DJ Rolls Royce, also known as Erica. I'm Tiger Paw. I'm Lagao, the La Beja. I've been throwing this party, a queer hip-hop party, for the past six years. I'm a DJ producer, musician, nightlife curator, uh, founder of Fake Accent. It's a platform that I created for uh, queer Caribbean youth. Right now, I am an entertainer. I am an NYC commentator for the NYC ballroom scene, and I am the event producer of OTA Weekly. It's a weekly mini ball that I do at the $3 bill in Brooklyn. Well, in terms of safety with our community. We've made it a point to kind of have like a statement outside of the club. We talk to the owner, the manager, the bus boys, the bartenders, and then we speak to the security guard. It starts from outside, you know, it starts from the door. I will always approach the security, have a conversation with them and inform them on what, you know, the attendance is going to look like, who is coming to, to the event. I'm pretty heavy on the security. Only because before I started doing OTA, um, I was a patron, you know, at gay spaces, not just balls. And there's usually a disconnect when it comes to how they address queer people. But I think security guards, period, they have this way, and this comes from experience, they have this way of antagonizing you to where you will be the person to throw the first blow. 
then putting you into a trap where, okay, now I get to really whoop on you because you fell for the bait, you know? So I usually have a conversation with all of my um, security guards that come, you know, and make sure it's just like, I don't want you to get into any conversation with any patron. I don't care what their situation is. If they're not of age, they cannot come in. You don't need to pull me to the front, but I don't need you to explain anything as becomes to the process. You just make sure that they can get in for their age, anything else we handle. So I think also is minimizing that conversation, you know? You're not an ambassador for the event. You're just making sure that by regulations of what your job is, that everything is going through. There was a security guard and his friends were there and they started laughing at uh, these two guys on the line making out. And they were laughing and then somebody saw these guys laughing with the security guard, who's mind you, taking care of my people. I was DJing, this person comes up to me and it was like, hey, I just want to tell you, blah, 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 this is what happened and I'm like, infuriated me because I'm like this is, first of all this was lesbian owned hmm. this was a lesbian owned bar so then you have your staff laughing at gay people like what the hell like you, you know you get paid by people that are queer you know and then you're here you know laughing at two gay guys kissing because you know in the block you know it's hot the next night I was like spoke to the owner talked to them I was like why are we having your security guards you know laughing at our people so they were reprimanded and end up getting like uh, finding new security guards that are used to being in gay clubs and stuff like that. So, three or four years ago with Fake Accent, when I was doing it at a particular venue that I don't do it, I don't host it, my party there anymore. There was an issue with a friend of mine being in transition with the, their ID, so they were like applying for their ID. They didn't. They just had a temporary one. They didn't have the um, their name changed on it and. The, the security kept misgendering them. And so I had to come out and, and you know, like to diffuse and, and, and also reprimand the security for being incredibly insensitive and offensive. And saying like, this is my event and like, like what I say goes and, and you know, this is a friend of mine and their identification is legitimate. And you know, regardless of like what you think. As all three curators wrapped up their thoughts, I posed a different question. Do we actually need security in LGBTQ spaces? I definitely think we do need them because we sometimes are in venues that allow straight men to come in or cis people. Um, and not only straight men, but there's also been some problematic cis straight women. It's not just a male aggressive thing, also females start and we just don't want that straight gaze. So when you have a security guard and you talk to them and you try to get them to understand, don't allow those kind of people in, it just makes it a little a little safer, I think. If they if they know how your crowd is and they respect us, then it, it's Gucci, you know what I'm saying? But um, it's tough sometimes. The the security guy is was one person, he and he was really, really chill. He was just like, no, I've never had any issues <laughs> I felt like he was saying like I don't really need to be here you know I've never I've never had, had to deal with any altercations of any kind we really need to try and present them other options when it came to recommendations each nightlife producer emphasized the importance of curation 
when you walk into the space, make sure that everyone that is a part of your production has spoken to you directly. Don't walk in there feeling like, oh, because I'm the event producer, I'm going to have my assistant speak to so-and-so-and-so. No, you need to know who the head of security is that night. You need to know especially who are all the security guards. Make sure that message is given out to those people. Because at the end of the day, you know, they can go off on the security guard, but people will stop coming to your events if they know they have to deal with said security guard at the front door. You know, so it's more than just feeling fat because you have an event and you have a night in New York City, which is already, you know, an accomplishment in itself. Make sure that you vet your employees. You know what I'm saying? And don't worry about being the bitch. That's necessary if, it, if that's what it needs to be. But considering that no one has a job that night if it wasn't for you saying, hey, I want to throw a party. So you need to make sure that all the ducks are in the row. So when you're out looking for an event or a venue, you want to be able to know your boundaries and to say, no, this is not what we accept. We want to talk to these people. We want to put this out. We want to do all these things because at the end, a safe party is a great party. I don't want nobody to come into my event and feel scared because we feel like that anyways. So at least maybe four hours out of the night, once a month to feel completely safe and not have to worry about someone else's taking care of that is an amazing feeling. Work. It seems there are a number of solutions to this issue. When thinking about safety and security, much work is to be done, but it seems like several groups are headed in the right direction. Thanks for listening to this program. I want to give a special thank you to Tiger Paw, DJ Rose Royce, Lego LaBeja, and Lego LaBeja for the track you hear, Block Assembly. Disco Tehran is not just a party. It's a dreamy, multicultural time machine that takes you back to the 1970s and beyond. Founded by two New York-based Iranian artists, Disco Tehran is a novel concept described by the New York Times as a performance project and party that combines live music and DJ sets in New York. Filmmaker Mohammed Abo El Wafa recently documented this carefully crafted, worldly gathering and its loyal, colorful, party-going community in his short film, Disco Tehran. Our producer Shadeen Bargi sat down with Wafa to talk about the film, why he made it, and the transcendent power of home. Here's Wafa. Okay, Slate, Disco Tehran. It started out as Cabaret Tehran. Yeah, so Cabaret didn't work, cabaret and didn't the next stick. thing was, was disco. It was, in a way, it was sort of creating public space as a place of gathering and partying and self-expression. And that was something that our parents' generation had access to in Tehran back in the 70s. Hey, Wafa. Hi, Shreen. Want to introduce yourself? I know who you are, but... My name is Mohammed Abu Wafa. I am from Cairo, Egypt. Uh, I have been practicing uh, photography and filmmaking since 2010. My name is Shirin Barri. I'm a senior producer here at Brick TV. When was the first time that you heard about Disco Tehran? The first time I interacted with Arya and Mani, the co-founders of Disco Tehran, was the summer of 2017. I remember I spoke to you after you went to one of your first live events, and you said that you suddenly came across something very unexpected. You heard a song. I think the name of the song is Shashkin. So 
Arya and Mani, they organized a party at a bar in Lower East Side, I think. And I remember there were so many smoke machines, right? And it's like an underground bar, like a basement bar. So it got very foggy. And there were a lot of like disco lights. It wasn't really like a bar anymore. I was just in this space that I'm surrounded by people that look like me. And Arya, uh, God bless his taste in music, started playing this song. It's a very, very popular wedding song that gets played in Egypt. And it's that moment where the family of the bride and the family of the groom kind of stand in front of each other. The song kind of invites this heartwarming kind of emotions that these two new families are merging together and are kind of getting married. I had no idea that I would be going to a kind of a dive bar and listen to that song. And because it hit me, I kind of screamed, you know, like I really screamed, like I lost control. And I'm not usually like the obnoxious guy in the <laughs> on the dance floor, but it just triggered so much. I reached out to Arya the day after and I'm like, I really felt something special last night. And I also think that these happenings and these events deserve to be documented. The concept is, it's not the Iranian party, it's a party that's in Iran. Well, you know, something mysterious, obscure, different, exotic, something we like. We build a community here. I have some friends, but I think all of them are Iranian. It's the best Iranian party in the town. So. I want to talk about your background in filmmaking. And I know that you yourself started by taking photos of scattered objects in your bedroom. So take me back to that bedroom in Cairo and tell me why photography meant so much to you and why it offered a sort of distraction. I was walking around in my house one day and I opened up this cabinet and I saw so many like cameras that used to belong to my father. And I thought, okay, let me, let me take one of them, just, you know, to play around with it a little bit. It was kind of uh, trying to escape in these little worlds that I create using the camera. So it, it was some sort of a distraction until 2011 happened, until the revolution took place. And that gave me an incentive and a reason to go out and kind of use the tool that I acquired into telling much larger stories. Day after day this week, the demonstrators massed and went forward. The troops answer their taunts with bullets. You included archival footage of the 1979 Iranian <clears throat> Revolution, as well as uh, more recent cell phone footage scenes of the mass uprising in Iran. Making this film must have been very evocative of your own experience of the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. I'm curious to hear what kind of impact that had. It was a sensitive issue to address. How old were you when the revolution was I, I was 22. I, I didn't really care about politics and all that stuff before. And 
these events kind of gave us a reason to take responsibility, to be more aware, be more active, and kind of speak our truth. So dealing with a parallel reality that happened in a different country, very close to us, yes, in culture and, and in uh, mentality and everything, but still different. I tried to ask the questions that could offer common grounds. I was back in Tehran in 2009. Uh, I was witnessing everything that was going on. It was unfolding in unexpected ways. And I think the Iranian revolution of 1979 was also another instance of the same thing. So the genealogy continues. I had many favorite moments in the piece, but one of my absolute favorites was when Arya talks about Cheers. This show, Cheers, have you seen it? You've seen Cheers. Have you seen Cheers? I haven't seen Have Cheers. you seen Cheers, Curtis? Which is so random and so unexpected, but it also makes you think about how we Iranians, we've been isolated from the world for so long, and we grow up watching these American TV shows, these random American TV shows. And I was curious to see if you yourself had any favorite moments in the piece. First of all, it's one of my favorite moments, too, because you can really see how Arya is kind of recalling the intro of Tears. Like his whole face <laughs> lights up and he's like... Sometimes you want to be where everybody knows your name. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, this thing, you know? One of my favorite moments is the part when Arya is uh, walking in a park with a camera on his chest, looking up to the sky and seeing an airplane flying over and uh, trying to get a shot of this airplane and seeing it fly by. And for me, it's like, a, it resonates with me a lot. It's that um, kind of melancholy or that kind of uh, longing. It's an invitation to acknowledge that we miss home, acknowledge that, yes, we need people, we need this warmth. I feel like a lot of immigrants um, get siloed in their communities, especially at a time when there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiments um, and, you know, everyone sort of retreats back into their shells or their comfort zones. And spaces like Disco Tehran, I think, are a way to break those shells instead of finding a home where I'm safe. You make a home where everyone feels safe. You, you are absolutely right. Disco Tehran kind of is the opposite of that and not the opposite by building walls and saying oh it's only for people of color it's only for immigrants you can't come in no by being open and being welcoming to everyone you mentioned longing mm -hmm. and it made me think of this idea of borrowed nostalgia for a thing in place that you never really got to experience you know the new york times has described disco tehran as reimagining the cultural moment that Arya and Mani never experienced firsthand. I find it very simplistic to reduce Disco Tehran to just like a bunch of throwback parties. If anything, it's a throw forward party. I think the point that you're referring to, Shireen, is some things that I have experienced during their parties, is that time stops. If you reach an energy level, then you can have a clarity of how 
to shape your own future, despite of the difficulties, despite of the stereotypes, despite of all the restrictions for these few moments is this kind of very brief sense of freedom. I don't know if I told you about my own experience of Disco Tehran. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought you never went, Jimmy. I did. I went to like the first one. Oh, We're the okay. first ones, yeah, but then I'm a bad Iranian. Yeah, you're a bad Iranian. <laughs> but one of the first events that I went to, I remember my phone was dead, and I was scrambling to find this venue, which was somewhere in Williamsburg. Just as I was ready to give up, Wafa, I heard the music. <laughs> At first I was so confused because I was like, am I hearing this right? I realized that it's the sound of Gugush. And I heard her voice. I forgot I was in Williamsburg, that I was in Brooklyn, that I was in a country that basically hates immigrants. And it just transported me back to Iran. It wasn't just Gugush, it was remixed with another song that I didn't understand or I didn't even know what language it was. In that moment, I realized what Disco Tehran was. It's a conversation between two people who don't speak the same language, but they understand each other perfectly, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense, yeah. So that experience I just described made me think of what Mani said about how when you leave home, that you don't have a home in a way that you're used to. And, and so, so it becomes your mission to recreate a vision of that or a reflection of a reflection of that. It's an ongoing process of learning, negotiation, negotiation and learning. We don't have to stick to a certain idea of home or a certain idea of, oh, this is ours and this is us. You know, because we can be anything. We can really, or in my view, we can change, you know. Um, My last question for you is, what do you hope for someone who has no idea what Disco Tehran is um, to take away from from the film after seeing it? I've actually thought about this a lot. And um, part of my uh, research for this film was to uh, gather found footage for Tehran pre-1979. And I found it difficult to find footage and, and, and videos of like parties and celebrations. I would like for this piece to be a document that uh, records how a group of immigrants, a group of um, people from all ethnicities and all races and and a group of young people came together and how we kind of celebrated and and had fun thank you for speaking to me you're welcome, Shreen Jun. Wafa Jun. <laughs> <laughs>
While any Brooklynite who's ever crossed Eastern Parkway is likely familiar with its annual West Indian Day Parade, the real party starts hours before the first float hits the road. In the pre-dawn hours leading up to Labor Day, an all-night bashment dances its way through the heart of Brooklyn, carrying on its back a tradition as old as the freedom it exalts. The recent incidents of violence have left an indelible stain on Brooklyn's Juve celebration. Revelers still show up in droves to take in the songs, sensations, and sound of home. Producer Dan Rosado crashed the party to find out how that sound traveled from the 1880s in Trinidad to modern-day Brooklyn. drum and the steel pan. Vibration of where we came from. They flip over the can. They take off the cover. And they just boom, boom. And they started from there. They decided to take the oil drums next. And so said son came the steel pan. It's an orchestra, steel orchestra. Born and bred in, in my island, Trinidad, all over the world now. You go to China, you see a steel pan. Eh? have a carnival spirit. All Trinidadians, it come like the little youths who born here from Trinidad, they could just walk on a steel pan and play it without going to any music school.
There's no sleep for me tomorrow night. That is called Juve in Trinidad. Before dawn, Juve. About 30 something years ago, a group of percussion guys, they turn a, a, a garbage pail over and they hit it boom. So they call it a dodo. Boom, boom. And another guy with a bottle and spoon and iron. Percussion. And they started moving from different dances to dances the night before Labor Day. Juve is steel pan and percussion instruments only. No electronic music. Juve is, is also about macabre. Things that go bump in the night. One is called a souvenir, like a flying woman. You're coming from a dance late in the night. All right, your head bad from drinking and stuff. And you see this pretty woman come in front of you. Her dress is long, so you're not seeing one of her feet. One foot is a cow foot. So that's not a natural woman. They call that a la jabless. And then you would have people playing the devil, dressed in black with horns and stuff like that. You get frightened and scared. Folklore, with the steel pan music and the percussion instrument. This is theater. Caribbean, Trinidad-led style. That's what Juve is all about. Theater. The Brooklyn USA podcast is produced by Sasha Mathias and Emily Bogosian. Thank you to Shadeen Saad for partying in the shadow of the tallest freestanding Dorit column in Brooklyn. Thank you to Kyrell Palmer for editing an all-day party into the shape of a podcast. Thank you to writer-producer Sid Ballou for taking us behind the scene and into the party sphere. You can follow Sid at Sidney Ballou on Twitter. Thank you to Wafa for putting the dance dance in revolution and to Shadeen for gugush. For more information on Disco Tehran or to find out where they're partying next, visit discotehran.nyc. Thank you to producer Dan Rosado for staying up late and marching to the beat of the modern pan. You can hear more of Dan's work at danrosado.com.
If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or rate and review the show on the apps. And now, you can watch some of the hottest video content coming out of Brooklyn, USA on the website. Visit brickartsmedia.org radio and click on Brooklyn, USA to watch Shadeen and Kyrell's short doc on Soul Summit or the trailer for Wafa's upcoming film on Disco Tanan. While you're there, make sure to check out Arina Koklova's short film on Brooklyn's dance sport club and the art and joy of competitive dance. We're tackling everything from gun violence to cooperative economics this season, and we want to hear from you. If you want in, send tips, pitches, thoughts, ideas, self-destructing messages, or just regular normal emails to radiopitches at brickartsmedia.org. And check the show notes for a link to our pitch page if you want more info. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Good night. While we were parting, we're just parting. I mean, you know, you you're just parting.